0: and bustle uh, this morning look like for you, and I know for some it was a lot. Uh, you can relax, <sighs> breathe easy for a little while, and sit and enjoy uh, managing maybe toddlers for the next few hours while I preach. And um, But but lunch is on the other side of all this, and more worship is on the other side of all this, so it's it's all good. This is... It never ceases to amaze me. Each year we get to another Easter Sunday, and we, I get, see my kids that morning for the first time, and, you know, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. He's alive. Like, we, we say it every Easter, and sometimes we'll, we'll do it on other Lord's Day. But there was a day in which it was said for the first time. It was a day in which that reality happened, when it really happened. You're not going to believe. I just saw him alive. And all the sorrow and all the sadness and all the darkness and all the hopelessness and all the despair of that weekend and what could have been seemingly melting away was gone forever. And, and slowly over time, the ramifications begin to set in. Oh my gosh, he's alive? What does that mean? It changes everything. So even as we say, he's alive, we sing songs about his resurrection again for another year. Never let that beautiful reality of it being said for the first time lose a grip on your heart. Like you feel that again. You feel the significance of his resurrection. So let's pray that we can do that through the word this morning. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much what this day means for us. It it changes everything. It means it's all true. It's all true. All your promises are true, and it changes our life now. It changes our life for all of eternity. Thank you so much that it was first said, he's alive, and we've been saying it ever since, and it's still true. Allow us to enjoy that in a fresh way this morning. Allow us to experience it in a fresh way this morning. May you speak your truth deep into our hearts today. We pray the same for all the churches around our city and region who are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, that their people would again be reawakened to this reality and reignited for for, uh, mission and passion to get the gospel to those who haven't heard. And we pray for those especially who haven't heard, either in our city because they've heard a watered-down gospel or a false gospel, the gospel has been preached to them so many times they don't even hear it anymore. But we especially pray for those who have yet to hear. Among the Wanchi people, among the Tibetan people, the Bonin people, the Zaza people, the D people, we thank you for our brothers and sisters you have sent to get the gospel to these people groups. And they haven't had any fruit They're still learning the language. They haven't been able to even proclaim the gospel to them yet. May today you fill their hearts with the hope of the resurrected Jesus, that there will be a day they will proclaim the gospel in their language and lost sons and daughters of our Father in heaven will respond in repentance and faith and will join the assembly of all the saints who have always been amazed and will always be amazed at our resurrected King. Fill their hearts today with that hope. Help us to see you today. Help us to experience Jesus today. We pray in his strong, strong name. Amen. As you're in Hebrews 13, we have finally arrived at the 40th and final sermon from the book of Hebrews. Yeah, and for the first time, we come to some verses that make this begin to sound like a typical letter to a New Testament church. Verse 22 Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, (laughs) briefly, be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who are from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. He starts off in those verses calling them brothers and sisters, reminding them of their family relationship that they share because of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, our Father has adopted us into his family. And so with every other believer who has ever lived, we are family forever because our bond is based in Jesus and his work. And nothing can ever take that away. And he says, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. Well, what message? The entire message of Hebrews. It was written as a sermon intended to be read and proclaimed as a sermon, but it was part of this letter, a letter, a message he urged them to receive. Now, the original language in the New Testament is interesting. It's the same root word for urge and exhortation. He's basically saying, I'm exhorting you to receive my exhortation. I'm urging you to receive this urging from me. Not begging, but as strongly and firmly as he can say, hear this, receive this, believe this. This is not a few random thoughts I've been spitballing and I'm going to throw them out there and you just take and pick what you want. This is faith or unbelief. This is life or death. This is heaven or hell. It's that important. Every preacher who prepares a sermon to proclaim preaches his sermon with this sense of urgency. Please believe this. It matters. This matters in who you are. This matters in how you're going to live your life this week. This matters in how you live the rest of your days. This matters for eternity. Don't just pick or choose what you like. Believe the entirety of the Scriptures. Because, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anyone or anything that we can put our hope, our joy, our affection in. Jesus is better than anyone or anything we can lean on or trust in for salvation. As we've seen throughout Hebrews, Jesus sets us free from legalistic rule following as a means to become right in God's eyes. He sets us free from weird spiritual beliefs like elevating angels over Jesus or elevating other spiritual guides or teachers above Jesus. Jesus is God and in Jesus we see God and we see his revelation clearer than any other way God has chosen to make himself known. Nothing compares to how we know God through Jesus. And we know Jesus through the scriptures. And so the ultimate way to know God is not through angels or voices in your head or spiritual guides from other religions or the wind blowing through the trees. The ultimate way to know the living word of God is through the written word of God, which is why we are a people of the book. The book of Hebrews has been emphatic for 13 chapters with this singular message, do not walk away from Jesus no matter what it costs you even persecution, imprisonment, loss of property, even death itself. You can't hold on to God and walk away from Jesus. They are one and the same. As we've said so many times, this letter was written to help these believers focus their eyes on Jesus to see he is better than anyone or anything else they can trust in. So keep believing, keep following, even if it costs you everything. And as the writer has urged us to receive this, I pray we have. I've shared on several occasions the last, over the last year how difficult the last two years have been for pastors in particular because I can speak to that. It's been difficult for a lot of people. And to walk through the Hebrews for the last year has been especially meaningful and encouraging for me. Just personally to be reminded week after week, see Jesus. He is better. He's better than, than the sorrow or the struggles or the frustrations or the anxiety or whatever you're battling through, whatever I've been battling through. He's, he's better. He's worth it. He's worth the battle through those, those things. This walk through Hebrews has given me grit to continue, a rock to stand on. Jesus is worth it. Many pastors in a lot of denominations are saying, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm finding a different way to spend my time, my career. And there have been days I've pondered the same. But Jesus keeps bringing me back to his love. His love for me, his love for you, his love for others that we're trying to reach. And this walk through Hebrews has helped sturdy my soul in beautiful ways that I didn't know I needed. It's kind of like he knows what we're going to need and then provides exactly what we need so that when we get there, we have everything we need. He kind of knows what he's doing. He's a good father. And I hope as we walk through this book over the last year, that's how you've received this book, that it's been a feast for your soul. And I hope when you come back to Hebrews in your own personal study in the years forward, like there will be, oh, man, I remember. I remember walking through that passage and how Jesus spoke to me and how I was encouraged and how my faith was in bold and how my fears were dissolved away. And I hope and pray that Jesus in your eyes has become more beautiful and big and amazing and your affection for him is intensified. And I hope that you will take time to share how he's done that with other people. Like when your missional communities gather, maybe your family today, or when your DNA gets together, or maybe you'll go in workplace and you'll post. Here's some of the ways Jesus encouraged me as we walk through Hebrews. I'm thankful for that. Give him public praise and worship. The last two verses refer to one of Paul's main companions, Timothy, who it seems has been in prison and could be traveling with Paul to see them if Paul is the author of Hebrews. Some people say, well, of course he is. Look at Timothy, but that's not enough evidence. could be a number of New Testament writers, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who's writing and sending this letter, a desire for the saints to all greet each other. He talks about greeting each other or greet those from Italy, the simple kindness of sharing affection as a family, not to be overlooked or dismissed, But encouraged, the simple acts of kindness that we can express to each other as family go a long way to us actually feeling as family, never overlooking the simple courteousness and kindness that we share with each other. And then lastly, he says, grace be with you all. Like we like to make distinctions between common grace, the grace that God extends to all image bearers, in other words, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to enjoy a beautiful sunrise, a delicious meal, to laugh with the people that you love, to weep with the people that you love, to, to be a successful doctor, lawyer, engineer, teacher, mom, anyone can, can be good at those things whether they're a Jesus follower or not a Jesus follower. All people receive this common grace and they experience these things and we as God's people can see that, celebrate that and use it as a bridge to share with them, hey, you think, you think that's good? You wake up every day, you enjoy your job, you enjoy your family. Let me tell you about more of God's grace, his saving grace, that he's expressed through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the grace of our Lord Jesus, which he's referring to in verse 25. Jesus, you could translate it like this. Grace be with you all. Jesus be with you all. And guys, that's possible because of what we celebrate today. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's very much alive. He's not in a box of bones in the ground in Jerusalem. He is at the right hand of His Father. He's with us. He's always with us, in us, and will be with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And so the letter of Hebrews closes like a letter, but I want to spend the remainder of our time with the two verses I skipped. A final closing prayer that is one of the great prayers of the Bible that once again finally and firmly puts our eyes on the uniqueness and amazingness of Jesus. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Six aspects we'll look at of who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done that I, I want us to walk and, with the help of the Holy Spirit, really see and savor and enjoy, and let it lead our hearts to worship Jesus. Like it's kind of like six final firework cannons at the end of a fireworks show, and just boom, boom. You're just like, whoa, that's amazing. Keep it going, never stop. It's so good. And the first thing we see is that God is a God of peace. May the God of peace—a common expression throughout all the New Testament letters—we receive peace from God so that we are no longer at war with God. Romans 5:1. Therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later, we found that that before Christ intervened, we were in fact at war with God as God's enemies. Romans 5:10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is our natural state as those born with a sin nature. Ephesians 2 tells us that our natural state isn't just being dead in sins, but we're actually an agent of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. In our natural sinful state, we are God's enemies and we are at war with God, and it's on the losing side. Like there's no true battle for victory with God. God wins all the time. There's no hope for those born in that natural state of sin apart from the God of peace intervening and making a way for someone to have peace with him. And he does that through his son Jesus. Ephesians 2. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so God is a God of peace in the sense if there's going to be peace with a holy, righteous God, it's because he's made a way, he's made known his terms, and there is a way, and that way is through Jesus. There are a lot of people who are in turmoil and live in trouble in their lives They have this lack of peace and rest simply because they continue to be at war with God over their soul. They want to be in charge. They want to be the captain of their ship. They refuse to simply repent and trust in Jesus and be at peace with God as their king and savior. It's my life. I want it my way. And that mentality automatically sets you on this course for rough waters. And one of the great ways we can demonstrate the reality of Jesus and his gospel to others is to live with Jesus as our king and experience his peace and let people know he is a good father. He is so worth loving and trusting and following. He is a good king. He rules well. Submit to his leadership and lordship in your life. Because it's not just that we have peace with God through Jesus that means we're no longer at war. It's also his peace through Jesus, comes to dwell in us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Like, how many people do you know who would love to lay down worries and anxieties and embrace peace and experience a peace that passes all understanding? A peace that is Jesus guarding our hearts and minds like a a guard on duty, marching around your heart and mind, giving peace. How many people do you know who need that? I was reading just this week in this increase of teen sadness and mental health concerns. In the 12 years since 2009, the percentage of teens who have this persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness has gone from 26% to 44% just in 12 years almost doubled the number of teens who just live this constant sadness, this constant hopelessness. Friends with our kids need this peace. Maybe our own kids need this peace that comes through Jesus. His peace is a peace we have forever and it's a peace we can live with in tangible ways as we run to Him and we give Him our worries and anxieties and receive from Him His peace. Secondly, this God is a God of peace who is the Resurrector of Jesus. He says, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. This is not only what we celebrate today as Easter Sunday, but we actually celebrate this every Sunday. It was the habit of God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years to set aside the Sabbath, Saturday, as a day of rest and worship. And in a very short period of time, that day moved from Saturday to what we call the Lord's Day, Sunday. And the only explanation for that is the resurrection of Jesus. Once Jesus rose on the third day, his followers quickly realized not only had he fulfilled the Old Testament religious rituals that made God's people distinct as a nation, but the Lord's Day takes on a new significance. It's the day that Jesus appeared alive to his followers. That even though he was actually crucified and killed on Friday, and though none of his followers, not a single one, Understood or believed him when on three occasions he said, I'm going to die, be crucified, and on the third day rise, though no one believed him and no one was at the tomb waiting for the stone to roll away. And though Satan himself believed that the death of Jesus was his greatest triumph, what was actually going on was the ultimate victory. When Jesus got up off the stone bed of the tomb and he neatly folded his grave clothes, a, a minor detail John gives us, and he walks out of that grave, it was the final proclamation to all of creation, all of Satan, all of the demon horde. Death has, in fact, been put to death. The greatest weapon our enemy has is been rendered ineffective. It will still sting. We will still grieve. But it is no longer a forever fatal blow to humanity. Death has been defeated. Death has been conquered. It holds zero power over us. It's so been transformed by Jesus, Paul calls it throughout the rest of the New Testament, a nap for believers. Sleep. The people that we love are going away temporarily from our presence, taking a nap and we will soon be reunited with them. To grieve for Christians, it is to be sad because we love that person, but it's a temporary parting of ways. One day there will be a reunion of all those who have died in Christ and we will be together as God's people in his presence and we'll never ever say goodbye again, all because of what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross in a tomb jesus said it is finished everything has been accomplished for this redemption to happen and then declared that at the empty tomb it's done i won this is the power of the resurrection so important paul would say to the church in 1 corinthians 15 they were struggling to believe you could actually rise physically from the dead like that seems ridiculous just as all of us struggle to believe that like i can't believe that actually happens And Paul says, I know you're struggling to believe that, but I'm telling you, you can because he did. And how do I know Jesus rose physically from the dead? Because I saw him myself. I wasn't the only one that saw him. All of his closest disciples uh, disciples saw him. All of his closest family members saw him. What would it take for you to convince your siblings and your parents that you are, in fact, the son of God, the Messiah risen from the dead? You would have to, in fact, rise from the dead. That's the only way I could convince my family I'm, in fact, God in the flesh. Jesus did that, and his family went from kind of, I don't know about him, to he's God. He's Lord. We're giving our life to make him known because we saw the sinless life all those years. Now we saw his ministry. We saw his death, and now we've seen his resurrection. He's the one. He, he appeared to Paul, who was basically a terrorist against the early church, going around persecuting and imprisoning and killing and watching Christians be killed. Paul on the way to Damascus to do more of that is stopped dead in his tracks by the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. He's convinced all those who could only be convinced by the resurrection. He appeared, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to over 500 followers at a time. Nobody can all have the same hallucination or dream at the same time. The best evidence for what happened in the first century is exactly what the Bible records. Jesus in fact, rose from the dead. It's so important to our faith. Paul says, you take this away and the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. It's a joke we are to be pitied, he says. But if it did happen, <laughs> then it's all true. It's all true. It's all true. Everything he said and did were true. Like guys, we never get away from the significance and the beauty of the resurrection. You, you cannot overemphasize how how important this is, how beautiful it is, how vital it is. You can't. We overemphasize everything today. Everything is the greatest. Everything is the GOAT. This is the best song. This is the best movie. We'll send videos to people and ten minutes later when we'll you remember what we sent them. I don't even remember what that video is about, because I've looked at 17 more since then. But it's the greatest video I've ever seen. It made me laugh so everything is overemphasized today. That's temporarily gone like a wisp. You cannot overemphasize the resurrection of Jesus, how important it is to our faith. Thirdly, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. First time Jesus is referred to in this way in the book of Hebrews. This would be a very well-known metaphor to the Jewish people. While Israel was in exile, so they were defeated by the Babylonians around 600 B.C., a little 586 B.C. They were taken by exile to Babylon while they were in that exile being punished by God because of their sins and rebellions. They had several prophets living among them, and one of them was this guy, Ezekiel. Ezekiel would give them messages from the Lord about why he had removed them from their land and why he allowed them to be defeated by Babylon and why they were experiencing his discipline. And unlike many so-called prophets of today, Ezekiel actually did speak the word of the Lord and his truth. And he says in Ezekiel 34, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds Woe to the shepherds of Israel! You have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, butcher the fat animals, but you do not tend the flock? You have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for a lack of shepherd. They become food for all the wild, wild animals when they were scattered. Your leaders, your shepherds, Israel, they were not for your good. They did not lead you well. They fed themselves. They didn't take care of you. They cared for themselves, not you. And in this chapter of Ezekiel, he goes on to describe God doing the exact opposite of these horrible shepherds. God's going to take on this role of being a shepherd himself. He says, in fact, if you keep reading, I will go and search from the lost flock. My scattered flock, I will rescue them. I will gather them from among all the peoples. I will tend to them. I will feed them good food. I will tend to my flock. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, and bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. And a few verses later, he gets even more specific. Verse 23 I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and he and will be their shepherd i the lord will be their god and my servant david will be a prince among them i the lord have spoken now david's been dead for 300 years who in the world is he talking about an obvious pointing to the one who would come in the line of david and fulfill this prophecy of caring for god's sheep and jesus shows up and in john 10 says i am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He is our great shepherd. No one, no one cares for you more than Jesus Christ. No one knows you more, knows you better than Jesus Christ. No one is more drawn to you no one has paid a greater price for your soul, for your love and your devotion. He is with you always. He, No matter where you go, there's nowhere you can go. He doesn't go with you to feed, to protect, to care, to lead. He is our great shepherd. He is for your good. He is for your well-being. He is for your care, your life. He gave up his life so you could live and have his life. We talked last week about how pastors serve in that role as shepherds for the flock. In the ways we do that best, it's only because Jesus is alive in us and he empowers and enables us to do that when we do it well. And when we fail you, which we do, and you see our flaws and imperfections, which we have lots, then that's when you say, you know what? They're not the great shepherd. They're okay. But I have a great shepherd and I keep running back to Jesus to help sustain me when other people let me down and other people fail me he gave up his life so we could live which is the next phrase number four who shed his blood and made an eternal covenant through the blood of the everlasting covenant Hebrews is a bloody book the bible is a bloody book in the garden God gave our parents the entirety of creation to enjoy with one prohibition don't eat from this tree if you do you'll Die. But deceived by the serpent Satan, Eve gave in to the temptation, while Adam just stood there saying nothing. And then he ate as well, and immediately their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And the Lord, who had been walking with them and enjoying intimacy with them in the garden, uh, began to look for them and calling out to them in their hiding, asking this question, Where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know where they are, it was for them to ask themselves, Where are we indeed? Why are we hiding? We've always enjoyed fellowship with him. What is going on? And there was separation where there had never been separation. And we learn from Genesis 3 that the essence of death is that very thing, separation. Adam and Eve wouldn't die immediately for their sin, but they would be cast out of the garden away from the tree of life. Theoretically, if they would have never eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they'd have lived forever in the garden feasting on the tree of life. But they had to be cast away from that, so they wouldn't eat from the tree of life while in sin and live forever in sin, which would have been horrible. In an act of mercy, God cast them away from the tree of life, cast them away from the garden. But before they were kicked out of the garden, God took the uh, an, uh, an innocent animal and used the skins of the innocent animal to cover over their nakedness and shame. They rebelled. They were separated from the fellowship and the source of life sin would infect all of creation eventually kill and destroy life constantly we live just in a bloody world but god in an act of mercy covered over their their nakedness with the skins of an innocent animal and this begins to help us see the full character and nature of god that we would not have known if he not did not allow sin into creation if he had not allowed adam and eve to rebel god is holy just and righteous so when he makes a command his commands are not arbitrary he's not just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks But they flow from his character and nature, and to obey his commands is, in fact, aligning yourself with who God is and how we are created to live and how we thrive best. But our parents rebelled, and because we inherit that rebellious, sinful nature, it's part of what we have in common with all of humanity. So what does a holy and just and righteous God do with his image bearers that he created to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth so that all creation can know and worship God? But we have said no and our rebellious sinful hearts that we inherited from our parents, we said, no, we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. What does a holy, righteous, and just God do who also wants to be loving, gracious, and merciful? Well, a good judge, when the law is broken, hands out the consequences that come from breaking the law, punishment. But if a good judge doesn't condemn the guilty, he is no longer a good judge. So what does he do? How can a judge rightly condemn the guilty but also show mercy, grace, and love? Well, in our legal system, the only way you could do it is like a reduced sentence. Or maybe you put them on probation, probation or maybe you put them in a nicer prison. But in God's courtroom, this is where the miracle of redemption happens. Because sin equals death, there is no reduced sentence. So what happens is the innocent judge steps down from the judge's chair, comes and stands next to the guilty party, and becomes their advocate, their substitute, like Katniss in the Hunger Games for Prim. I'll take her place. He says, I'll take their place. I know they're guilty. I know I'm innocent, but I'll take their punishment for them. In fact, go a step further and give them credit for my innocent life. So that when God looks at our name, he does see the sinfulness, but written over the top of all of it is the righteousness of Jesus. So that's really all he sees when he sees us. This is redemption. The guilty who should die, the punishment for sin, are allowed to live so they can go free because the innocent one was willing to die in their place. Romans 6, 23, clear and concise as it gets. For the wages of sin is death, that's all we've earned. That's our paycheck, death, because we're sinful. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how God is able to be both just and merciful, holy and gracious, righteous and loving, because he himself purchased our salvation with his own Blood. He died to death, we should have died, and we get his life and forgiveness and spotless record. And this exchange, he says, is eternal. Like once you get in on this, you can't get out of this. It's yours forever. If you're ever like, "Ah, I don't want that anymore, he's either gonna chase you down because you're actually one of his or you were never in on the begin to begin with, first John two tells us. It never expires, it lasts forever. Fifthly, he is alive in us to give us all we need to do his will and be pleasing in his sight. So so now what? We've been purchased by his blood. We've become his people. Verse 21, this equips you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. This is just amazing. Now that we are his, everything he calls and asks us to do, he equips us and works in us to make it happen. This is why John would say in 1 John 5 that his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome because all we need to obey is given to us to help us obey. In whatever place in your life you struggle to live as God has created you to live, whatever your greatest areas where there's this biggest gap between what you know and believe to be true and what you actually do, we all have that gap. I know this is true I know this is how I should live, but this is what I'm actually doing. And your gap may be bigger or smaller than others, but there's a gap for all of us because we all still fall short. None of us perfectly get there. So that gap that exists, it's important for all of us to always remember Jesus is inside of you to help you do what you don't think you can do. He's inside of you always at work to close that gap to shrink that gap as much as possible. It won't be fully closed in this life. We won't reach perfection in this life. Not until we're in the presence of Jesus and glorified forever. But he's always in you to help you to do what you don't think you can do. Take the hardest commands in Scripture, the ones you don't think you can consistently obey, and Jesus is at work in you to make that happen so you can experience his power, his presence, his closeness, his love. And he doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. We quit on ourselves. I'm just a mess. Why do we even try? I'm checking out. We certainly quit on each other. Uh, well, you know, I've been keeping record of their attendance, and they're here today. Of course, everybody's here today, but you look down on each other. That's never how Jesus looks at us. He never quits on us. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. Next week, we're beginning a walk through the book of James that Lord willing will carry us through the rest of the year. In fact, we have these uh, scripture notebooks, so pick one up for yourself. If you're going to be with us for the next year. Uh, we'll talk more about this next week, but we have those on the table on the way out. Um, James is one of the grittiest, hardest, in-your-face with how radical the Christian life is in the world. Books. That's the title of the series. Kidding. And you're going to consistently come face to face with this dilemma. How do I possibly live that out? How can I obey this? And we'll be constantly telling you, you can't. You can't do it. In and of yourselves, you will fail every time, which is a good thing because we love to make much of ourselves and talk about how amazing we are. And so you're constantly going to have to run back to Jesus. Okay, help me. I'm supposed to treat this person this way. I'm supposed to act this way. I'm supposed to love this way. I'm supposed to serve this way, sacrifice in this way, suffer this way. Help me, Jesus. If anything good is going to happen, it's going to happen because you are in me helping it happen. Lastly, the very last phrase, what is this ultimately all about? Where is this ultimately headed? The end of verse 21. To whom? Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. The spotlight is for one alone. The songs we sing in the eternal state go to the book of Revelation. They're about one person. He is the source. He is the rock. He is the focus. He is it. It's all about Jesus. There's no one even close to who he is. And this Jesus who has done all that the book of Hebrews has cataloged and detailed and portrayed, this Jesus who has done all of this, and by his grace, he has applied it to a bunch of rebels like you and me, a bunch of bumbling, stumbling saints who seem to fall backwards into everything good over and over, doing his will over and over. This Jesus lives in us to empower everything we do to affirm who we are to remind us constantly of his great love for us who else is like this jesus who else has done what jesus has done who else deserves the worship and the glory of all of creation john 13:1 before the passover festival jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world He loved them to the end. He then goes on right after that verse to take the job of the lowliest servant, washing the disgusting feet of his 12 disciples, including the one who was about to betray him, including the one who was about to deny him. And he continued all the way to and through the cross. Dane Ortland writes about this verse in Gentle and Lowly. And he says, when the Apostle John tells us that Jesus loved his own to the end, John is pulling back the veil to allow us to peer into the depths of who Jesus is. His heart for his own is not like an arrow shot quickly but soon falling to the ground, or a runner quick out of the gate soon slowing and faltering. His heart is an avalanche gathering momentum with time, a wildfire growing in intensity as it spreads. Now notice that this love is not indiscriminate. Having loved his own. Which drives our mission to see more and more lost children found and to know Jesus as Savior and friend and to be loved by him to the end because they are his own. And so on this day that we celebrate the beginning of all this, really the beginning of the spark that we call Christianity that's changed the world like nothing else in 2,000 years. If you don't know that you are his own, that Jesus is not just your savior and your king, but your shepherd and your friend, there's no better place to be than to be in this room with all these people who would love to take their time today to tell you who this Jesus is and how you can be his. So if the Spirit of God is speaking those words to your heart, please, let's talk before you leave. Let, let today, what a day that today could be the day of your salvation. And if you are His, then let's worship. Let's sing. Let's feast together in this meal. Let's give. Let's love. Let's encourage. And let's stay on mission this week. The week after the resurrection of Jesus where we proclaim to everyone, He is alive. He is alive. Jesus, thank you so much. What we celebrate today is everything. It's everything. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in the resurrected King Jesus. Thank you. You only you would have orchestrated, ordained and been able to carry out this amazing plan to show your love to a fallen, broken humanity and creation, to redeem us, to save us, to make us your own, to radically transform us so that our lives more and more enjoy Jesus as our greatest treasure. Thank you that we get to enjoy this, we get to experience this, we sing these songs and it just resonates in the deepest place of our heart. We feast on this meal And it's the sweetest meal we could eat because it's about Jesus. But we also know there are so many who don't yet know Jesus this way. So we pray for them. You've put them in our city with us so that you can send us to reach them. You've scattered them to the nations so that you could raise up churches like ours to send families and individuals to reach them. And it's going to happen. And when it's all said and done, we're going to sing your praises. Thank you, King Jesus, for who you are. We ask and pray all these things in your name. Amen.